Welcome back to Revelation On Demand Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you revelation from the Bible. I'm your host, Justin D. Myers, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Mr. Chris S. How you doing, buddy? I am doing fantastic. Praise God. It's a wonderful day. Uh, things are on the sunny side up, and I would say for you as well. Uh, both of us have just been blessed yeah. recently in our lives by the Lord, and we're ever so grateful mm-hmm. that we still have this platform, too, for us to be able to communicate with our audience and to convey uh, the blessings and the source of inspiration for a lot of our life. And that is directly through these specific sections of the Bible, I, I would argue. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I would. And it looks like this podcast will be here to stay even a little while longer. So uh, I, me and Chris both haven't gotten any real need to change direction in what we're doing so far. So we're going to continue keeping on the way we're doing. And we know you guys are listening, so we really appreciate that. And uh, we're just we're, we've been discussing a little bit where we want to go. If you want to have some input on that, send us an email. Tell us what you think we should cover next. Uh, we're not we're not opposed to the viewers pitching in. So we're just we're talking about some books like uh, Enoch and Isaiah and all sorts of uh, are more the more spiritual or prophetic books in the Bible, which are kind of the focus that we have seemed to revolve around. We could also, at some point in the near future, go back through the Revelation series and update all those. So uh, right. there's, on, there's plenty of options for us. Yeah, on an, epitable, on an epitable level, this is what we do on a regular basis. This is how me and Justin hang out, in a way, uh, even with our distance, mm-hmm. uh, uh, even with our safe distance, with uh, with everything that's going on in the world right now. Uh, you know, state Several to state, this is what away. we're doing, <laughs> right? This is what we're doing on a regular basis. This is, this is how we communicate. It's the platform that we've decided on collectively, and we're using our spiritual skills and uh, collective assets in order to present it to you. And we're very happy to be here. And in, like you said, any direction that you guys might want to be hearing about, uh, we could do selective episodes. We could tailor something for your guys' specific desires because that's really where we mm. want to meet the needs of the individual. This is a ministry after all. So we want yeah. to be able to connect with you guys as soon as possible and as much as possible, even if you need to maintain a certain amount of distance, we're perfectly fine with that. Yeah. And as, as you've undoubtedly seen in the description, there's links to Facebook and our email. So if you, if you need a way to contact us, those are the best ways. So, We're willing to listen to anyone and talk to anyone whatsoever. We bring it up at the end of the episode more often than not of, uh, you know, wherever your angle is or whatever perspective you're coming from, uh, feel free to reach out. So, yeah. Well, let's get this show on the road because we've got a huge episode today. And if you are one who's very interested in drama shows, this is, this is, uh, it's a lot of history. It's a historical drama we're we're going over today. So, yes. Uh, last episode, which I'm not talking about our Christmas episode that we do every year. I'm talking about last episode, the Daniel ten. Uh, we talked about 
how that that chapter was the opening to what these two following chapters are going to be, where he's talking about expanding the visions that we studied in Daniel 7 and 8 and really getting more details. And this is where we can kind of look at history and look at his visions and say, this is, this is what happened. And this is most likely what his visions were pointing towards. Uh, so. Right. And what are they come essentially in the future as well? And that's where a lot of our focal point is here at revelation on demand is we started yeah. as revelation book of revelation based podcast. And that's our, uh, that's our foundation. So um, we're, like you said, approaching this in a historical referential way. So he, Daniel had a vision, right? Visited by an angel. And whether he was face down, face up in his bed, in the spiritual realm, he did see these, he did see these manifestations of beasts that were spiritual beings. And what exactly a lot of those uh, basically symmetrical to, uh, where they would be in the in in the physical world is as far as like symbology and ideology goes, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a lot of it has to do with uh, like forces of power in the world. We saw this previously when we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar, or when we were talking about the statue, or you know, anytime we bring up any sort of uh, like physicality or spirituality that represents one thing or another, it's got to mean something, right? Right. Right. That's quite right. So today we're going over chapter 11. And this section outlines the transition between uh, the Persian dominance, which we've seen at the very end of Daniel's story, where we're talking about like Darius, the King Darius, and, and all that the transfer from Persian to Greek. And of course, this would have been the end of Daniel's life. This would have been after Daniel. So he is talking about things that are going to happen in his very near future. So this this specific area goes mostly over the third and fourth beasts that we talked about in Daniel 7. If you remember, that's the four-headed cheetah, or leopard, sorry, the four-headed leopard and the great beast. And then the in Daniel 8 was talking about the ram and the goat, which the goat was Greece quickly coming over and taking over where the ram or Persia was, was in charge of. Right. And then we come back to these, the, the imagery of the little horn, which we're going to go over that a lot and figure out or talk about the family that led to the rise of Antiochus the fourth, which there's a lot of uh, numbers in in this family lineage because a lot of people were just named after their, their predecessors. So then yep. we end up with a lot of the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and even the sixth at one point. Oh, we're going to have fun with so, that. Yeah, no, it, it gets a little confusing. It was a little hard to to study this and, and keep everything straight. Cause there's just so many players. It's easier to think of them as when you hear a name, uh, think of that family and then, you know, kind of use the number to figure out ex- 
about where you are in the the linear or the chronology of what's going on. So, yes, and if you hear a name means, with a number, do not refrain from using. Oh wait, I'm sorry. What? What about his family? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just my. That's I'm fine. so excited for today's episode, and I wanted to say like. I will try to personally refrain from using too much urban lingo when, uh, whenever we're talking about these players. Okay. Well, <laughs> shall we dive into scripture then? Yes. Okay. So we are starting as if, um, if you're just joining us from the audio side of it, this is the beginning of Daniel 11. Okay. Let's get started. <clears throat> and in the first year of Darius the Maid, I took stand to support and protect him. Now then, I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will rise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be a far richer, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. All right, so the the main kings of of Persia, which is that four-headed beast we're going to be talking about, is Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. Now, we met Cyrus and Darius... We met Darius the... First or second? When Daniel was... You know, when the Persians just took over. So, we already met one of the kings that is the predecessor... I believe it was Cyrus that was taking over after Darius. So when we're talking about Darius, we're talking about a descendant of that Darius from Daniel chapter six, not uh, that Darius. So oh, I was going to say he's his distant cousin, the, the grandchild of the first one. I think I don't. I, I don't uh, I'm not sure what number Darius was the one mentioned in uh, Daniel six. I'm sure. It's not that hard to figure out, but I didn't, as I said, there was so much going on in this. I, I missed plenty. So scratch that. We got a new Darius anyway, in the house. This is son, <laughs> Right. So we're, we're talking about the, the Persian, uh, the Medo Persian empire and their Kings. So, uh, right. When, we, when he's talking about three yeah, more Kings, will rise Cyrus, in Persia. He, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Cyrus would have been the first, and then Darius, which is Darius the third, Xerxes and Artaxerxes, which Xerxes and Artaxerxes are pretty common names in that area. So to have kings name that, uh, they are talking about specific historical kings when we go over that, but we're not going to focus so much on the Persian immediate uh, government. We're going to focus more on the people who are in the area of Jerusalem and who are working in the area of Jerusalem and Egypt. So as as we go through this, the correlations become 
less transparent. So this this leads to that. We've talked a little bit before that either all of this, there, there's two views. There's either all of this was historically already passed or that there's still part of this that is possible in the future. So even our future. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, like there's some people who believe that even part of this has not happened yet and it has yet to come. So Darius the third is the King of Persia that lost to Alexander the great. So he would have been the King over the region during the time that we see Greece sweep over that area and completely take over uh, this area becoming that that next great empire that would would span most of the modern most of the world at the time and they would lay the groundwork for Rome to come along later and we'll talk about that as well at the end of the episode you got the Greeks before the Romans Alexander in yeah. the house <laughs> So yes, the, the Persian Empire was very wealthy, which led them to a little bit of arrogance, which was probably also part of the reason why uh, Greece came through so quickly. When you're wealthy and powerful, you tend to think that nothing can stop you. So all it takes is a, a bigger dog in the fight, basically. Uh, and Greece was definitely the bigger dog. Yes. So it talks a little bit talk in that section about a mighty king. Yeah, yeah, it talks about a mighty king, who, which is translated better in the Hebrew to warrior king, and maybe you have a translation that uses that. But anyways, this, this describes Alexander well, because during his campaign, during his, his time as emperor of Greece, or king of Greece, he very much took over a lot of ground through conquest, and he, he laid... Uh, he laid siege and, and took over much of the Middle Eastern and the Mediterranean area. Yeah. So, and then it also says that it was not passed to because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So it wasn't it wasn't passed to his descendants. Yeah, it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised. So, as we know in history, after Alexander passed away, he didn't have any heirs that could take the throne, so it ended up going to four of his generals, and that's what led to the downfall of Greece and making it weaker and much easier for Rome to come through and just take over the entire region. Yes. And if this is your first episode tuning in with us, we use a lot of the metaphor and uh, imagery that's used in the Bible very casually, and we'll pass it off like, oh, and by it saying it wasn't uprooted, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, with a lot of this stuff, you really have to set yourself in the mindset that whatever is being conveyed is more than mm -hmm. likely a very serious connection to something else. It's just because of the ancient mm -hmm. dialect and with a lot of this way that was translated, it has to be presented as a metaphor as, uh, well, on a, some would argue on a theological basis, we consider it to be fact, but uh, a lot of the source of inspiration has to, uh, for more or less, come from a certain finesse or artistic way. So when we talk about uprooted, if you think about like the roots of a tree, 
or the root mm. of a family tree, you got to think about how that branches off and how that would expand to its original source. Uh, if you're talking yep. about other trees in the same grove, then, you know, <laughs> by all means, that tree would be passed on as fertilizer to the surrounding area. Right. So, and that's yeah. mainly when we, I mean, this is kind of a convoluted concept and it gets a little bit complex whenever we start talking about governments and territories, uh, especially in the Old Testament. I would argue that anytime we're bringing up the Old Testament, you're going to be dealing with a nation that's warring another nation or that's susceptible to this and it's falling under the influence of so-and-so. So that's where a lot of the details, more of the intricate facts that we're going to go into are going to be uh, deriving from, if that if that all <laughs> translated mm-hmm. properly. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So if that's all we have on that section, let us uh, start into the uh, Game of Thrones, basically, that's about to happen. Oh, my gosh. So, We'll see Daniel kind of give us a a general idea of what is happening in his vision, and then I will connect what happened in history to that. So, if you'd be so kind to read. Yes, we're now at verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will rise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. All right. At the very beginning, we meet our first character, the King of the South, which is most likely talking about Ptolemy I, which if you know anything about ancient Egypt, this is a very prolific uh, pharaoh line in Egypt uh, known as the Ptolemies. Anyways, Ptolemy I gained control of Egypt uh, right after Alexander uh, swept through the area uh, in... in, uh, because he came down through Jerusalem and, and into Egypt. So okay. Greece Greece and Egypt were very uh well they're two of the biggest players in the area. So and I I'm not hundred percent sure they shared a border. I think it was more likely area that they both had conquered shared a border. And then we hear about mm-hmm. this next character called his official, which this is Se- 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 the first. Now, this guy, 
is is pretty pivotal in what happens between the king of the south and the king of the north and he ends up doing quite a few things and as we heard in there there was there was intermar- there's marrying and then there was uh kind of this one one king trying to exert control over another king through the marriage and then this this family kind of gets yeah broke apart like like i said this is like the game of thrones section of the bible there there's so much vying for power in this er- this section and when we look at the time that daniel is referring to in history i mean like you could literally write a book on this and i bet you you could sell it to hbo like seriously this this is some like grand you know royal families fighting over the the power and stuff like that so i mean the way i see it you can make a rom-com out of it too like you know <laughs> the wife's family doesn't want to pay for the marriage they volunteered to do so so that they can get back at the at the at the groom's side, excuse me, hmm. and uh, the groom's side is forced to have to pay for it. Little do they know that they're going to pay more than just however much uh-huh. it costed for that wedding because they end up stuck with this, you know, a bride or oh uh-huh. my gosh, it's it, you know, it, it, eventually we're going to see how this all rolls out. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did my best to kind of break this into kind of story sections but anyways so selecus's grandson antiochus the second which is the this is the first mention we have of antiochus uh he married into ptolemy's family to a woman named bernice now antiochus yeah well um they're they're trying to bring peace between egypt and greece at this point uh, oh, so this is this is further uh, down the line. Seleucus the first is is one of these generals, I believe, that took over a portion of of Greece. So, anyways, he's trying to broker peace between his region of of the Grecian Empire and Egypt. So he marries off his grandson to uh, Ptolemy's granddaughter. But at this point, Antiochus II was already married uh, and and had a first wife. So after Bernice had children with Antiochus, uh, his first wife, Laodice, uh, went in and, and plotted a way for all of them to be killed. So Antiochus II, his new wife, Bernice, and their children wiped them out in a uh, probably very bloody plan. So... And then, oh, that would explain why yeah. one from her family line will rise to take her place when it's talking yes. about uh, yes. when it's always talking about the daughter of the king of the south will go to mm-hmm. the king of the north and make an alliance, blah blah blah. Yep. And then in those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort mm-hmm. and her father and the one who supported her. So, this uh, yep. the, the ex wife is just, or however much she was in a, as a sit in wife, or yeah, uh, is just she's out for blood. <laughs> Yeah, so it said that Antiochus II and in, in Laodice had had made amends or something like that. So obviously that first marriage was strained. Uh, so whatever happened, she used that to to plot against him and get them all killed. So in retribution, Ptolemy the uh, Third, Bernice's brother, attacks the Seculids, which is the group of people in the area of Greece that Seculus's family is over. So very much 
yeah, the Seleucid Empire, uh, if you've heard of that. So very much uh, Egypt goes to war over this, basically, uh, with the the part of the, Gru- the Grecian Empire or the Seleucid Empire. Um, so then the son of Laodice is that, that, that first wife of Antiochus II. He comes along and he was named Seculus II, and he reclaimed that land that Ptolemy the I think that's supposed to be third Ptolemy the third had took from Greece. So this is very much, there's wars going on back and forth. And, and several times these two families try to marry in and, and make peace. And over and over again, we see them just, they always come back to fighting over things like, and it's always very much one empire is trying to, assert its will and dominance over another empire. And most of the time it seems like Egypt is on the defense, uh, at least from what I've studied. So Seculus II had a son. Guess what his name was? Seleucus, sorry. Seleucus. Uh, Seculus, I said that. No, it's Seleucus. Seleucus II had a son. Guess what his name is? Seleucus III. And he also had... Uh, Antiochus the second. So this is very much, excuse me. This is the, the family is getting bigger and we're getting more and more names to, to kind of keep uh, track of. So the Antiochus line and the Seleucius line is all part of the same family. The, the family that is the, uh, the kingdom of the North. So this is, when it's talking about an official, it's talking about Seleucus the first in his, his uh, family. And then as we come down, we see where the Antiochus uh, line comes in. So this is kind of setting the scene for the next, the next movement, which we're going to see even more friction between these two families. And like I said, you could easily go into history, you know, study all this and write a drama of some sort over this. Like this, so very much did the get what she wanted, but at the expense yes. of the, the 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 bride's family having to be at yes. war with these Jews because she wanted. It, so she got back her her lineage and her power. It was just at you know the expense of you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, of war being inherited throughout the future generations okay yep yep and we're gonna we're gonna constantly see greece and egypt butt heads in this area and and a lot of this back and forth is what caused the decimation of the temple in jerusalem so interesting okay that actually okay that puts it on a timeline for me I mean, mm. okay, so essentially all these complicated names, if you're following this along, we're talking about war between where? Yeah. Greece and Egypt. That's all you really need mm. to know, other than the fact that um, these people just really need to get their stuff in line. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shall we all continue right. at 11? Yes, verse 11. Starting at verse 11, I should say. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. 
For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the kingdom of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will be able to establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will return his insolence back on him. After this, he will, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Okay, can I just say something real quick? So, so I'm just picking up based off of where that's whole saying is, and you can get into further detail and give me names and give us names. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that after like a single generation or during this generational transition, you got the North coming down into, oh, excuse me, you got Egypt going up to Greece Greece pushing them back into Egypt, Greece winning, and as they push forward, they lose, singling out the king of the north of Greece, and on his return and on his retreat back to Greece from Egypt, Mm -hmm. he gets trampled. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, like I said, this this section talks a lot about a back and forth between these two empires. Well, the power within his campaign, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So this next section, we we moved another generation or so down the family lines. So we're at Ptolemy the fourth and Antiochus the (laughs) third. So the king of the south is Ptolemy the fourth, which is from the Ptolemaic line of the pharaohs. And then, of course, Antiochus III, which is, again, from that Seculid uh, or Seleucid uh, line. So the, and the, again, the, we the, see... The Lucas in the house. <laughs> so again, we see these two empires uh, butting heads over land disputes over... And it's a lot of, you know, he attacked me, and so I'm attacking back. And it's, it's this circle of vengeance where... You know, one one begots violence, and then the other re- returns with violence, and of course, then the other returns with violence again. So, very much, this area was in was in uh, extreme conflict for years. And again, as as they go back and forth over this area, uh, Judea or not Judea, but Jerusalem is right in the middle of this this war path back and forth. So they often, and it's more more often than not, the Antiochus side that ransacks Jerusalem and takes stuff from the temple, and they're the ones. Even though it's normally their area, 
they're the ones who tend to bring most of the destruction. And as we've talked before about the little horn, which will come up again, this is often thought to be Antiochus the fourth who would completely decimate the temple. And uh, that would start the timeline that we've talked about before about the time to rebuild the temple right. in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So, which you do have a generation of people that were uh, Jews that were Babylonians or mm, migrated to Babylon against their will mm-hmm. and then back over to Jerusalem, which is also in relative location to all this, mm-hmm. uh, which would also be where Daniel is. He's in Babylon as a power of Babylon. So mm-hmm. you, you got a lot of that that would tie back into him too, which is why he's able to foresee, I guess, a lot of this. And yeah. uh, as a future generation, so, you know, he's for speaking, he's getting this as a premonition to a very long line of lineage, which apparently mm-hmm. he's, I mean, God's already got all the know-how on this. He's like, hey, Daniel, I just got to reach out to you and um, I'm going to say yeah. Gabriel or uh, Michael. And uh, so basically by the time you get this, it's just... You know, you got to convey all this to you guys because no one else yeah. is just going to be able to interpret all this because y'all the only ones on the in the know. Uh, we are talking mm-hmm. about the Old Testament here. Um, <laughs> little mm-hmm. tidbit. If we're talking about the Jews in the Old Testament, we're most commonly refer- referring, when I say people in the know, they are uh, the predominant protagonist in this, right? So if you talk about the lineage of the Bible, you talk about the Old Testament basically being, or the Torah, which is still believed by the um, Judaism and the Jewish community to be the official book, is going to be the, you know, that's the main campaign. Is It's the Jews, right? The gods, uh, gods and his connection to the Jews. As you transition mm-hmm. into the New Testament, which is part two of the Bible, uh, for those of you who needed to know this, um, you're talking more about... Uh, the Reformationists and the actual Christians, followers of Christ and the Lord. So when we, when we're talking about, I guess to, to wrap that up, when we're talking about the, all these warring powers and how they tie in with the Jews, it's, you got to picture like, okay, how does Greece, Egypt and Jerusalem all tie in? Well, Jerusalem is our home base, right? That's our base of operations. And then we're talking about two, opposing forces that could potentially, and they, you know, as you were just saying, Antiochus does come in for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which just happens to be the Uh capital of, yes, Israel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It it just, it gets so complicated. I meant to say Israel there a minute ago, but uh, if you're following along with any of this, and we appreciate those of you who are still listening, uh, trying to Mm -hmm. cycle through all these names, it, this is a very informative episode where we tend to mm-hmm. take a lot of perspective into this, but as far as yeah. catching y'all up on the drama of the lore, we're going to get a little mm-hmm. nerdy with this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you haven't caught up on that so far and you're like, this is like a social studies episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know why these guys <laughs> are still talking. Why is Chris remixing what JD is, excuse me, Justin is saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to point out and and make this clear is that Daniel was living at about a time 
500 BC and Alexander the Great didn't come along until 336 BC. So if the the BC era it goes backwards, so the bigger the number, the further back in the past. So uh Daniel is literally talking about a part in history that is hundreds of years in his future. So this this is all happening long after Daniel has, you know, gone to be with the Lord. So anyways, at this point, someone who comes into the the picture that many people may know, uh, Antiochus III's daughter, who is named Cleopatra I, hey. married into the Ptolemy line to Ptolemy V. And this is where so. we get a lot of that Cleopatra of Egypt uh, storyline, where uh, this was Antiochus's way of trying to assert control over Egypt. Now, Cleopatra, being the good wife that she is, uh, completely severed herself from her her father and his uh, his his want to use her to uh, control Egypt. So when when she married into Ptolemy's line, uh, she completely changed sides in this whole thing, and and so that kind of foiled Antiochus the, the third uh, plans, and as they entered this era of peace because of the marriage, because Antiochus III wasn't going to attack his his daughter, of course, and, and her her new people. Uh, Antiochus III would eventually pick a fight with Rome that would end up starting this slow crawl of, of Rome taking over the area that Greece. Now at this time, many of the, the Grecian uh, smaller empires, the, 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 the people, because Greece kind of fractured after Alexander the great because of those four generals. So uh, they would eventually end up with Rome taking over all of that area, which as Rome took over and built more infrastructure and brought all these cultures into this larger overarching uh, uh, empire, they would lay the the infrastructure for the roads and in the aqueducts and all this stuff and bring an era of prosperity to the region, which would just set everything up perfectly for Jesus to come along and bring the gospel. And at that point when Jesus's ministry was ending and he was going to the cross, the world was primed for the gospel to spread through the ancient world, like wildfire. So this is all slowly led up to the culmination of Rome taking over and building that infrastructure, which the Bible would propagate through. And at the time, it would have just been scrolls and stuff like that. But this this is all the history, in the pivotal history that would lead to the ability of what we know today as the Bible to spread. Well, I just moved my notes. Anyways, yeah, the far reaches of the world, because otherwise we'd be still watching World War BC, which is on Sundays <laughs> at nine eight Central. Uh, and just for the record, when we're talking about figures like Cleopatra, Ptolemy, uh, Antiochus, Alexander the Great, and we're like, well, they didn't want to be doing this, so it benefited so-and-so. We're, it's an, a little bit of an opinionated statement 
for us to say that oh Cleopatra was being a good wife to so and so and then you could <laughs> you could come up with 14 different reasons for all the different lines of lineage that Cleopatra created because she was not a good wife and yeah we we, we understand <laughs> that but you know or, or the fact that Ptolemy well you played a video game where Ptolemy was the meanest dude in all of history and yes he was he was a really <laughs> mean dude we're talking about mm. in terms of territory, conquest, and gaining power. Mm. We aren't necessarily yeah. talking about on a moral level, was Antiochus <laughs> a good guy? Was yeah. it the smart way for Laodice for, you know, was it a good idea for Laodice to uh, do what she did in order for Greece to still be around after the Romans started to rise to power? No, absolutely not. But as far as like, if we're going to talk on a responsible level, in like terms of war, in terms of structuring a government, or even you know further propagating, propagating like I said, a campaign. Uh, we might say that Cleopatra was a good wife and abandoning her previous lineage, which would have been mm-hmm. detrimental to the kingdom of Egypt. Now, uh, whether yeah. or not that proved true, which we're going to get into here shortly, and whether yeah. or not. Ptolemy had 14 different mistresses and he's also got, you know, like a a penthouse over (laughs) in Las Vegas. That doesn't really necessarily matter as much as where they ended up at because of the fact that God was in the know-how, Daniel's in the know-how, and he says hundreds of years before, hey, this is what's up. This is what's going to happen. And the mm-hmm. fact it did, by our time in the historical timeline in modern day, we could look back and say, mm-hmm. my God, Daniel was in the know when mm-hmm. these ancient documents were being produced hundreds of years before. He was in the know of blank, blank, and blank before these figures were even named or even brought into fruition, which in the ancient world, yeah. how is you know, 150 years in the in the future, how was someone on the other side of a different continent supposed to be like, I'm going to name my daughter Cleopatra, and this is going to be, yeah. be exactly how she acts? No yeah. idea. But the fact that Daniel yeah. is in the know is the reason why we're studying it as eschatologists and mm-hmm. as a biblical podcast is how we can say mm-hmm. fact or fiction, fact, he was in the know and he was able to communicate this. Mm-hmm. Not calling yeah, Cleopatra. He we, we want to do that right. Uh, yeah, you're talking about Daniel, but um, when I said Cleopatra is a good wife, I simply meant she severed connection with her father. Not not that she was a moral paragon like most of the people in the Bible. It's hard to call anyone good, but I was I. She was doing this because wife of the Pharaoh was a far higher and more powerful title than daughter of the king so yeah uh, she she was doing it for her own reasons but sorry i meant to s- just say that she had no, you don't need to amend yourself I, <laughs> I went on a tangential rant to yeah. just sort of expand on certain things we say because we do live in a world where everything can be held liable that's where right. liability lies is we're talking from a perspective in the ancient world if you and i were playing a game of cards who's gonna win mm. not mm-hmm. okay well who's got the nicer set of cards here or oh wow yeah. whoever painted those was definitely a much better person to go through because they're a small business so you know what i mean yeah yeah all right shall we go into the next section then Yes, we have quite the amount of sections today. That was yes. Uh, that was uh, just me giving Justin a break so he could breathe because we are talking <laughs> and reading. Yes. Okay, we're starting from verse twenty now. 
And this is a hefty section, so bear with us. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or battle. He will be succeeded by contemptible by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and will and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come to the appointed time, at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. So we move another generation or so here. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we're giving you a fair warning here, folks. You know, you got to know what's... (laughs) You're, you're knowledgeable on what you have. You've gained a lot from, you know, conquering your enemies. And what do you do? Mm. You don't even take it to the Lord and be like, okay, you know what? We don't know what to do with this. Nope. He's yeah. like, I'm going to have to gain so much more out of this because it's just not enough for my greedy heart. And that mm-hmm. brings out his own destruction. But I'll let you get into that. Yeah. So there is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, there's uh, parts of the Bible called the Apocrypha that some people don't uh, take as scripture. And personally, I don't, I don't take the Apocrypha as scripture. There's just some issues with the, uh, the um, authorship of those books, but it doesn't have to be scripture to be important in a way that it tells us about things that happened during the times of the Bible Anyways, in Second Maccabees, it tells of the Maccabean Revolt, and it talks about the event of an official who was mentioned earlier named Heliodorus. And uh, he went into Jerusalem demanding the temple funds and, and was trying to take the temple funds by force, and this started the Maccabean Revolt. Now, the tax collector mentioned is Seculus Fourth, which... Uh, a Seleucus, sorry, Seleucus the first from the Seculid line. Uh, he was killed in this plot by Heliodorus to when he came in to take over uh, the temple and and take the funds. So Dude, again, talk we have about this, a downgrade. This, yeah. gets, he gets right, all the no. way down to tax collector. His family line gets yeah. all the way down to tax collector, and then he gets killed mm-hmm. by the next dude who replaced him too. Yeah, right on the opposing and, side, and, even. And we see this a lot, like. Uh, Jesus was from the line of David and David was a king and 
Joseph was a carpenter. Like now it was through his mother's side. But again, why would uh, the granddaughter of a king marry into a carpenter? Uh, so we see this a lot in the ancient world where these families vie for power and eventually someone gets toppled and in within a couple generations their their descendants are tax collectors or carpenters and we see we see very much that there's a lot of un, of um instability at least generation by generation so yes as as you see seculus is the fourth was from the great line of the kingship and when his family was deposed he ended up as a tax collector and then was eventually killed in a plot by Heliodorus. And then this is where we see the rise of Antiochus the fourth. And again, as we, we, we heard earlier, you know, the seculids and the, the Antiochus lines were kin. They were literally part of the same family. So we see that Antiochus, Antiochus's line came out over uh, Seculus. And we often, we've talked about this a little bit before in, in Daniel chapter seven and eight, where we're talking about the little horn and this despicable person and how he could, this could be a partial fulfillment of the antichrist, or this could be the, the guy that this prophecy was referring to at the time. And we see the things he does, like destroying the temple and taking from the temple and using Heliodorus to raid the temple and all these things. We see, we see him. Line of kings. Yes, yes. So we we see we see him playing this part of the little horn. Uh, now, personally, is this is this the full fulfillment or is this a partial fulfillment? I'm not 100 percent sure. We see a lot of clues as to both. Now, I would say, I would say arguably it could be both because if you look at no. down the timeline, we're talking about mm -hmm. we, we commonly in the Bible it'll talk about the horn and how a mm -hmm. beast will have a horn and how mm -hmm. one sharp object leads into multiple sharp objects of somehow yeah. equal proportion. And we're not sure mm -hmm. how. But either way, if you look at it like mm -hmm. on a timeline and you're starting to, you know, find the connections. This mm -hmm. little instance, even though it's a big thing in history, mm -hmm. this little instance does have to lead into something of a greater, more evil power. Evil is, you know, expanding in this way. So it, whether we directly tie it into a specific figure like the writer of Conquest, the Antichrist, mm -hmm. or uh, etc., we know for a fact that this is where we start to get beasts with horns, right? We did talk about that a little bit yeah. back in Daniel uh, chapter seven. Mm -hmm. So we see Antiochus come to power in the area of Jerusalem with the aid of the Hellenistic Jews, which is another group we've mentioned in previous episodes. And these were Jews who were of the Jewish people, but they had a bent towards Grecian culture or Hellenistic culture. And they, they wanted to Grecianize everything in Jerusalem. So with few people, he ended up taking over Jerusalem. And then as he warred with Egypt back and forth, uh, they went, Antiochus attacked Egypt and Ptolemy the sixth, which, uh, Ptolemy the sixth was a very young boy at the time he was Pharaoh. So yes, 
uh, Antiochus, you know, attacked, took some land, and then having that connection of Cleopatra and, and, you know, his father, Antiochus was a uncle or a cousin to Ptolemy the sixth. So he used that relationship to kind of trick Ptolemy into having peace talks and, and giving up some of this ground that Egypt had taken. And, and he literally leveraged his family connections to take advantage of, <coughs> of Egypt. And then as he's going back and forth with these, these wars, every time he passed through Jerusalem, he, he took more and more of the wealth of Jerusalem. Uh, and at some point he ended up just completely destroying the temple. So, yes. And then, you know, I, I mean, if I were Ptolemy at this point, any of the Ptolemies <laughs> and looking at this, I would have been like, you know what? I don't know if I feel you so Greeks. bad for the Ptolemy before me or the Ptolemy after me. What are the Greeks doing? Why is this dude named Antiochus still in the family? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, if if I was the Ptolemic line, I'd be like, I don't trust you, Greeks. Like you, you're just in it to take as much as you possibly can. <laughs> right, and even if you go back over to, I'm trying to remember his name, but. Any of that, for whatever reason, in Egypt they allowed uh, royal lineage, and you see it some other places in the world too, where mm. uh, someone very young in the line was just basically uh, mm. the will of the entire country. We're willing to bend over mm. backwards for you, even though you're eight years old. Uh, okay, yeah. so um, I still kind of want that pony. So yeah, you can take this entire city and start slaughtering people. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. No. It- we see that where uh, the heir is not of age and ends up ruling or something like that. I think or, t- or well aware uh, of what emperor, the ramifications yeah. are. So they're very easily influenced in negative and mm-hmm. or positive ways, more so on the negative yeah. because of the brutality yeah. of the ancient world. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, as we more commonly relate to any time spiritually mm-hmm. or mentally. Yes. Yeah. Shall we continue at 29 then? Yes, we got two more sections, folks, and then we'll get out of your hair. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're almost there. I promise. It's going right. to be a long episode. Let's see how fast I can read this. At the appointed time, we will invade the South of Getting <laughs> Let's do this. Starting at 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the South again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the Western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. (laughs) Again, he will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. 
Well, I like that last part. Yeah. I really do like that part, mm. last part because when we, anytime we're bringing up the appointed time, uh, sorry if I was kind of splotchy on my section reading there. I got I got so excited for those last two. Um, anytime we're talking about the appointed time, we're talking about time this, time that. We're usually referring mm. to as a Revelation podcast. We're talking about the the unknown hour, the unknown night. That mm-hmm. the Lord is to come as though he is a thief in the night and save us. So this was basically talking about, and you'll get more into this here in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, yeah, more drama, more drama, more drama. Why is he? Okay, so we, we know who the bad guy is at this point. They're both bad guys, but, you know, both powers of the king of the north and the south are both bad guys. But more importantly, the king of the north, <clears throat> Greece, is more of a bad guy because he's plundering and really taking his edge to Jerusalem and taking out all of his frustrations on them because he can't win against Egypt. And that's where you see the believers are suffering too, even though they're more... Basically, what it says is like the believers will suffer too here. But, and you know, the bad guys will stay in power until the end of that appointed time, which is the reason why I first brought that up. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll see a resistance and you'll see where these people will fall even forthcoming of the you know the greek the grecian powers are still going to fall right yeah down the line these kings these powers of evil are still going to exist until the end and they're finally vanquished mm-hmm. but it i mean that's just so interesting to me i'm i'm trying to put it into words because this guy is basically taking it to god and being like, mm-hmm. I'm even taking your people and sending them back to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. God's cracking the hammer on him here soon. Yeah. It's just, it's mm-hmm. a shame that he has to last until the end of time that many have suffered at the same time. So that's probably why mm-hmm. I'm at a loss for words there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so much to say about this. Why as I alluded to. <laughs> as I alluded so to I've saying alluded nothing to. there. The- <laughs> Just keep interrupting me. Thank you. <laughs> Anyways, as I alluded to, uh, the destruction of the... <laughs> Composure. <laughs> don't. Don't fire me. <laughs> I'm not going to fire you. Anyways, as I was alluding to, the temple destruction. Uh, Antiochus IV, he picked a fight with Rome. He was going to take some of the ground that Rome had steadily been taking over. That would be Greece. And uh, he went to fight with the Rome Romans and ended up getting his hand, his butt handed to him like very severely. Like this was humiliation. The, the Roman governor or whatever that defeated him literally sent him packing with his tail between his legs like he, he just completely humiliated Antiochus and so to vent his anger he turns to Jerusalem and just levels the temple and, and ransacks the city and then he he uh, puts up this, this altar to Zeus which we will talk about in the next section and this is this is the area where the two points diverge. Is this fully fulfilled or is this still yet to fulfill? Is Antiochus the little horn or is the Antichrist the little horn? We we see very much this is where the, the two paths of those uh, ways we treat scripture diverge the most. 
So either it'll continue to speak of Antiochus, which, as we've talked before, maybe this is just a partial fulfillment that Antiochus fits nicely, or this is still times yet to come, as Chris was alluding to, the appointed times, the end times, the the revelation things that we have talked about before already. Oh, so. see, that's what you're getting at. And I didn't, and I didn't <laughs> see from the from the Romans earlier, not because he can't win against yeah. Egypt. He can't win against anyone at this point. Let's be real. No, no, yeah. It, but he I, just I, he, he can't win against anyone, so he picks on Jerusalem. Like, <laughs> what a, you know, a it's, it's the yeah, I know. It's the small bully picking on the weak kid. Like, <laughs> but if you're going to go down to the base of what is a horn or you know a, a symbol of. Uh, you know, I was joking, calling it sharp objects. Uh, uh, when you go down to the base of it, I mean, it, Antiochus does lead into what very well could be the Antichrist because mm-hmm. of the way that the Antichrist is structured as one of the four writers of the apocalypse. If you don't know who mm-hmm. that is or what that is, you can follow up on our previous episodes, check out the book of Revelation by yourself, or, you know, mm-hmm. look up the research. But if he's the writer of conquest, he's supposed to rise up from what is seemingly something that we are not able to see from the blind eye, and yet mm. it's been there the entire time, you could argue, even from an eschatology way, we're not going to separate you know, history and be like, okay, this is the line of lineage that the Antichrist comes from. But spiritually and symbolically, the figure of Antiochus does kind of start to match up with the figure of the Antichrist, if you think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of the way that, you know, not only behaviorally, yeah. Yeah, I would it, argue that the way that his, he structured himself, built himself up to become a, a force, an opposing force, and then falls short of the mm-hmm. mark when he is replaced by mm-hmm. the truth at the current time and place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we very much see Antiochus. Uh, and if you were in Jerusalem, if you're a Jew at this time, when Antiochus was taking over the area, he would seem like this this great conqueror, this this unopposable force, because he just he just stomps on Jerusalem constantly. But as far as in the global perspective, he was a small fish, like the bigger the bigger guys, like Rome and Egypt, just constantly put him back in his place basically. And at some point they get tired of this. And this is where Rome fully extends its, its uh, coverage all the way out to Egypt. Like, so he's more of a nuisance to the bigger empires like Rome and Egypt. I mean, but if you think about it, like the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was a, was a fish tank. And you had one thing in the world that could break that fish tank. And all I had to do was just, you know, break that thing opens to drain it in any sort of way mm-hmm. or, you know, shape mm-hmm. or form, Antiochus would be more important in the grand scheme of things than a global power hmm. to at least yeah. to Jerusalem itself. You know what I'm saying? With that logic you're applying. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. that, you know, he's the more, he's the strongest, but all it takes is that one thing that could bur- mm-hmm. burst the bubble, break the tank. That would be, mm-hmm you know, the most substantial in terms of, you know, the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of God and Mm. its direct connection with the world. So, I mean, uh, both need to be taken into account. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he was really responsible for dividing the Jewish people against themselves uh, with these Hellenistic Jews and all that, that helped him assume power over 
and, and do these things to Jerusalem, honestly. So if he didn't have the help of some of the people there, he probably wouldn't have been able to do any of the things that he did. So, yeah. Shall we finish this out at 36? Yes. Last section here, folks. And uh, it's a hefty one. Hope you're here for the ride still. This is the best part. <laughs> <laughs> the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and say and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be unsuccessful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of a fortress. A god unknown to his ancestors, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. I see. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Good thing, too. Yeah, right. This tyrant. The end to this tyrant. The tyrant uh, who can't even stand up to the other tyrants is like, okay, you know what, guys? Right, right. I'm just going to quit going north, and we're going to say, yeah, woohoo, we're going to put a Zeus, you guys are going to model after, you know, yeah. Rome itself yeah. and so, blah, blah, blah. So we'll, we'll, we'll honor you guys. Okay, I lost. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, just let me go take out yeah. these other guys. Yeah. So as loser. we know, Antiochus and his <laughs> loser, <laughs> anyways, his family comes from that, that first Persian uh, culture that we were talking about at the very beginning. So his family wouldn't have been part of the Grecian pantheon. They probably would have worshipped the gods of the Persians. Um, so Antiochus taking Zeus and make and dedicating the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus would have been a, a serious change of belief or a change of what God he was serving. So the unknown very God much the, one, yes. Yeah, so we very much we very much see that Antiochus is is do is fulfilling this part of scripture through bringing in Zeus to his kingdom. Now, this is where we have the the harmonizing issues is that uh sometimes when we talk about the antichrist, we don't think of him kind of petering out like this. So this is very much a point in this being about Antiochus and not the Antichrist. 
uh, where it says, yeah, he will come to his end and no one will help him, which we know from studying Revelation that the Antichrist unites basically the entire world against believers. So we see here that, uh, you know, God brings him to a very pitiful end where he just kind of disappears from history. And of course, we don't really talk about Antiochus when we just do broad summarizations of history. So he very much was, you know, just forgotten about in that, in that section. I still think the Antichrist will derive from powers of the flesh and how it is represented throughout history repeating itself and in time mm-hmm. will create that world, whether that's a, that's a very bad thing, by the way. But if he were to model, if we were to create a historical model of what could mm-hmm. the Antichrist potentially gain, have he control over mm-hmm. the entire planet, that would be Antiochus part two, not giving Antiochus mm-hmm. enough credit for that. I'm saying you know, in the mm-hmm. long run, if the Antichrist is supposed to derive from the power of conquest of the flesh, and that's how we see it, um, he's going to derive from all the sources of evil that would be, you know, regarding that specific thing. You know, if we we could go into the four writers of the apocalypse more often, but mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about the theme of conquest itself and that form of domination, mm-hmm. he's going to... I think the reason why we have things like this in the Bible is so that we have foreknowledge and it is forespoken of these are specific signs and a good reason why we're going over this section today. These are specific signs that you need to look out for um, and that you'll have plenty of knowledge. Now, we're not going to be around by the time the Antichrist is. Yeah, <laughs> the Antichrist so. is fully into fruition. We're all gone and we're, you know, we're raptured by Ben and, hmm. you know, and for those who must remain, uh, that's a different story. And, you know, yeah. there's still a time of redemption. But, you know, a majority of us will not have to experience this wrath or this form of totalitarianism that Antiochus Part Two, Antiochus on steroids, Super Saiyan mode, is going to be able to have, I, a.k.a. Antichrist, even though he's going to be in direct opposition to the imagery of Jesus, where Antiochus, you could argue, is just like any other, uh, not dictator, more so like a conquester on a you know small scale, even though he can't get to the mm-hmm. next level, no matter how hard he trains. I really got to start doing the video game thing, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all right it's part of our culture at this point we always bring it up yeah so what is the too long didn't listen of today well i this this whole section was was all prophecy on what was to come and so we connected history to prophecy and we've seen how god can give these prophecies to his prophets and they are good. They will come about. They will always happen. So this is one of those sections where when you bring in all this knowledge of what happened in history and you apply it to what the Bible said that was going to happen, you see that the Bible happened before or these prophecies were were done long enough in advance that when it happens in history, it kind of affirms the fact that these prophets were speaking truth to their, their prophecy. So this is just one of those arrows that you can put in your quiver where you can show, Hey, 
this is the time this was written and this person lived. And then several hundred years later, this is what happened and exactly what he predicted happened. What, what God told him would happen happened. Yeah. So I think this, this is one of those, those apologetic moments uh, where it's not necessarily just, you know, a moral lesson that we learned today, but this is one of those arrows you can put in your quiver that, you can use to defend your faith in the Bible. I felt like that was really important to have done because I don't, I don't just want to give you guys moral lessons. I want to give you actual tools that you can use. And these, these facts as, as, uh, in as intricate and as detailed as they were. And, and you may have glazed over at some point, uh, it is important to know some of these things so that you have that ready at the hand. You got anything else to add, buddy? I, yeah, I would just say when it when it comes to like it, it, to further dive into what you're saying too, but uh, mm-hmm. before we wrap this up, is you know I think it's natural for even believers to question their faith and to question the mm-hmm. source of inspiration. So when we look at fulfilled prophecy, we're literally looking at something that was brought to us by the Lord and brought to us by God and was Mm -hmm. like, yo, this is going to happen. It happened. And we can prospectively take that and apply it to revelation. We're going to take it to a lot of concepts that the Bible very accurately presents to us and be like, okay, I'm in the know. I know what to do ahead of time so that if any confrontation on this level of sin, on this level of evil ever crosses my path. The Bible's already uh-huh. taught me as like an arrow in your quiver. I have a defense toward it. I have yeah. the strength. But long before this is to transpire. So I like mm-hmm. I like the uh, analogy you used there, like an arrow in your quiver. As, as far as like when you're battling with your daily demons, with whatever, however you want to put it, you have your weapon, the Bible, as we've outlined, as we outlined in the Holy suit of armor, your Bible is your weapon too. And, you know, as far as that goes, you always have a defense mechanism and you have spiritually in the foreground, what is exactly going to be able to defend you and prove you successful when you have to fight. By the strength of the Lord and by the strength of God and the Bible. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Beautifully put. Shall I run us out or you got anything else you want to say? Oh, (laughs) you take care, bro. Why don't you end up? Why don't you go ahead and close us out? All right. Thank you for listening to Revelation On Demand Podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture, and we receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact us at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time.